Yes. It is good to see you. I, I hope that the time change didn't affect anybody. We gave out free coffee to the first service uh, to help them wake up. And, uh, uh, but it is, it is good to see you. Uh, before our message this morning, would you put the graphic up there about the care groups? Um, that, uh, that as we have been talking about care groups, uh, there, I want you to see there are a lot of different uh, types of care groups that we have. They all do the same thing, but for different age groups and stages of life. Uh, please take a look at that. If, there, if you are not in a care group and you want to be in one, we have openings. Those, those advertisements are there so that you would uh, perhaps join one. And if you see that the stage of life I'm in, I don't know that I fit in one of those. Uh, or perhaps I would like to see a different one, please let us know. We'll be more than happy to, uh, to help you um, out with that. And then also in the seat backs, you're going to see a little, little handout like this. Okay, there's a lot of folks in our community that will only come on Easter, perhaps maybe Good Friday or Christmas Eve or Christmas or, or those times like that. And uh, they come for the most part because... Well, that's they're doing their duty, or perhaps somebody is wanting them to come like a spouse or a parent, uh, something like that. So I, I'm going to, each Sunday, we're going to mention this so that you will take this and invite somebody to Easter service. Uh, develop a relationship with them. Maybe invite, to, invite them to come to your home for, for Easter uh, lunch after church or a reservation in a restaurant, but please be intentional about inviting somebody, because if we can, uh, if they will come and they realize that we will love on them, perhaps this will be something that will that will stay. A lady was telling me uh, earlier before the service in a time change uh, a while back in another church, the time changed and she didn't change her clock, and so she came an hour early and came to Sunday school for the first time, and she stayed because she found community. So if we can uh, just love on some folks... Uh, they may come. This morning, not to let you down, is not a politically correct sermon, but it is a biblically correct sermon. And so I, I want you to, to think about the things that I'm going to share in just a minute. I just want to give you a heads up on that. Uh, we're going to be dealing with some things that we don't hear all the time. You have heard everything that I'm going to talk about at one time or another in the pulpit, but I don't know that we've all done it together. But to set that up, I want to share with you, in my hometown, uh, over in Liberty County, uh, there's a little convenience store. It's a couple of them, but there's one of them. And at that little store, you can buy gas and diesel and barbecue at one time and milk and bread and coffee. And there was a gentleman in that community whose name was Mr. Sackett, and he had a dump truck. And Mr. Sackett was what you would say was a good old boy. He, he knew who my parents were. He knew my wife's parents. And he would frequently go to one of these little convenience stores, and he would go in there for coffee and conversation. And it could be in winter. It could be in the, in the 100 degree of summer. It didn't matter. But when Mr. Sackett would go into that store for five minutes, 15 minutes, or an hour and 15 minutes, he always left the engine of his dump truck running. And so... I wondered, Mr. Sackett, why do you do that? I mean, it's the dead of summer. He told me one time, I was 17 at the time, he said, you know, young man, he said, the, the old timers uh, told me about that. 
uh, he says, that's just a good habit to get into, and you know, they did it, and I don't really know why I'm doing it, but they did it, so they told me to do it, and so therefore, I will do it. It's a habit, and I really don't know why I'm doing it. The same philosophy can be with you and I. You know, you and I can be doing something and we don't really know why we're doing it and we may not ask why we're doing it because that's the way that we were told and we've always done it that way. And there is a seven-word phrase that is the death of churches. We have always done it that way. Well, there's one thing that we do in churches from time to time and we may not fully understand the the why or the what that is behind it. We may not fully understand or appreciate the details that are behind the Lord's Supper. We may be familiar with the narrative, but we may not, our hearts may not reflect on the why. And that is what we will do this morning. So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And then as you're turning there, I'm going to ask you to stand and honor the reading of God's Word. And we're going to look at but just a couple of verses. And so if you are able, please stand and honor the reading of these words of God through the Apostle Paul. This is inspired text. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 23. And so this is what Paul is telling the church then and there in the little area of Corinth. And so he says to them, starting in verse 23, For what I received from the Lord, that which I also delivered to you. So in other words, what the Lord had imparted to me, I imparted, this is Paul, I imparted to the Corinthian believers, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. His body is for them, as he's talking to his disciples. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Would you join me in prayer? Oh, Father, I am so thankful that there are times in Scripture which you tell us to remember certain things, and those things are very important that we would know them, that we would understand them, and we would apply them to our lives. And then as parents, we would teach our children why we are doing what we are doing so when they grow up, they would know full well why we do what we do in the house of God. And Father, this morning as we look at the details surrounding the death of our Messiah, that we would never forget that we would never simply overlook or just give it a, a thought of that it is not that much when we sit at his table. But, Father, that it would touch our heart, it would pierce our heart, so that we would understand that when we take our place as your children at the Lord's table, that we would realize that we would not forget what our Lord went through and that we would be reminded and where our heart has gone astray or where our heart has not given you all the glory that you deserve, that we would be reminded to the great lengths that you went to demonstrate your love for us. And Father, we ask the Holy Spirit would hover over this congregation, would illuminate this text to us, that we would apply 
Touch our hearts, Lord. It is in the precious name of Jesus we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. So, we read in the text, it says, Do this in remembrance of me. Well, what is it that we're to remember? Well, obviously, we're to remember that the bread that uh, we saw there in the setting and that we will observe here in just a few moments represents the body of our Lord. And then the wine or the juice that, uh, that is there, it represents the blood of our, of our Messiah, Jesus Christ, the, the, the life that he gave up. But do we really stop to reflect all the details on, on what happened after the Lord's Supper? Because we observe the Lord's Supper here monthly, about 12 times a year, and, uh, and we always reference what it means. But I felt the Lord leading us as Good Friday is coming next month, and that is Easter is coming, and then this would observe the Lord's Supper that we would take the time to remind ourselves what went on in the price that our Lord paid. So, if you haven't ever studied this, or you haven't studied this in a while, that is our humble assignment this morning. So, in the timeline that I'm going to go over, I'm going to go ahead and give you three resources that I'm going to use. We're not going to look, and I'm going to ask you not to turn to any of these. I'm not going to give you the full address because I want you to hear the narrative that is taking place. But if you choose to, to research some of this, you can go to a book called Harmony of the Gospels or something like that where it shows every event that happened in the life of our Messiah and how that lined up in all the Gospels. And you can see the timeline that is there. There are also some things that are in Roman law and history that you would see dealing with uh, persecution or, uh, or execution through uh, uh, the cross. And then also in 1986, the Journal of the American Medical Association wrote a lengthy article on what a body would go through if it was subjected to the atrocities of the cross, namely what our Lord went through. So when you bring all of this together, we get a clear picture of what was going on in the mind, in the heart, in the body of our Lord. So, we read the account of the Lord's Supper where Jesus is, is speaking of the bread and the, and the blood. And Jesus already had on his mind what was coming. I mean, none of this snuck up on him. He knew what was coming because he was omnipotent. He knew all things, uh, even as a uh, child. I mean, even as he was here on earth, the things that the Lord allowed him to know. Now, one thing Jesus did say, that only my Father knows when he's going to return. But in all the events that were happening there, Jesus knew what was coming down the road. And so he knew these things, and, he, and his mind is looking forward to these things. And then... There, it, when they're having the supper, they go into what's called the upper room discourse there in John 13, and that is where Jesus washed the feet. It is a humble servant leadership, if you will, of washing the disciples' feet. He even washed the foot of the one that would betray him. He washed the feet of Judas. And then... As they're done there, then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, a short distance away there in Luke uh, 22. And there in the garden, Jesus is praying intently. It is a, it is a deep uh, thought uh, in, in a prayer, almost in agony, because this is coming out of him. He knows what's going to be happening. 
And so when he is praying there in Luke uh, 22:44, Jesus is speaking of the cup that perhaps that could pass from him to Father. But Jesus says, not my will be done, Father, but your will be done. So even knowing what was coming, Jesus Christ was submissive to the will of his Father. And so while he is praying, you read in different accounts where his disciples, his inner ring, if you will, they fell asleep while God in human flesh was praying intently right there. I mean, they were so unconcerned, they, they fell asleep. And it said that Jesus, when he is praying in the intensity of his prayer, that he would uh, sweat because it was just so intent and that uh, it gave a description that the, he would be sweating like drops of blood. Now, I want to read a, a medical report on what all was, was happening here and that it is quite likely this is what happened. So it says, it says, during his intense prayer about the events to come, Jesus sweats and it's likened to drops of blood. Now, there's a medical condition called hemahydrosis, hemahydrosis, during which the, the capillaries that are feeding the skin, due to the intense anguish, they will begin to leak slightly around your sweat glands. And so when you are in intense, fervent prayer and you are sweating, that what would happen is, is the blood would, would leak out into your sweat glands so you would have this watery, slightly bloody sweat. And so they have actually seen this happen on the battlefield, and not all the time, but where there is an intense and excruciating anguish in times of war, they have seen this condition in, in soldiers on the battlefield. And so it's quite possible that, medically possible, that what is being described there is this. Okay, And so we know that there was anguish on the heart of our Lord because he tells us in Matthew 26, 38, it says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. So if Jesus was in fact undergoing what's called hemahydrosis and, the, and his skin was, was it's not a whole lot, it would just be a watery blood that would be on the surface, what that did is it would make the skin much more sensitive it would make it much more tender, and the intensity would begin to degrade his physical condition. And all the while that this is going on, and he's doing all this, it was Judas that sold him out for some silver and went to the religious leaders. And so Jesus was betrayed, and soon thereafter, he was arrested there in Luke 22, 47 through 53. And so they, they arrest Jesus. And then what they do is they, they take Jesus to what we would call today a kangaroo court. It is a silly court that doesn't even follow its own rules. It doesn't follow the rule of, of established law at the time. And so they bring Jesus to a man. You'll either hear him known as Annas or Ananias. It doesn't matter what you call him. But Ananias was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who at that time was the was the, the high priest. And so he goes before Ananias, and then Ananias said, get away from me, and sends him to Caiaphas, who is, the again, the high priest at this time. And so in the dialogue there in Matthew 26, when Jesus is before uh, Caiaphas, Jesus is, he is uh, spit on, he's slapped, he's struck in the face, and he's mocked. And so then Caiaphas sends Jesus on to what is called the Sanhedrin, which is a, a group of Jewish elders, if you will. It was kind of like the Jewish uh, Supreme Court. And so they met 
and Jesus was there, and then they pronounced the death sentence on Jesus. Well, all the while that Jesus is undergoing trial, his buddy Peter is out denying him three different times. Peter says, Father, I, I will, or Jesus, I will never deny you. And uh, Jesus says, oh, yes, you will. And so there, three times while Jesus is on trial, Peter failed his trial and denied Jesus Christ three times. So after Jesus hit the Sanhedrin, they could pronounce a death sentence, but they couldn't carry it out since they were under Roman control. They send Jesus to a man named Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea at that time, in Luke 23, 1 through 5. And so Pontius Pilate sees Jesus, and he realizes that, hey, why is this guy standing before me? I'm paraphrasing, of course. This guy's not guilty as they're describing him. And then Pontius Pilate finds out that Jesus is from, uh, from Galilee, and so then he sends Jesus to Herod who was the Roman governor of Galilee at that time in Luke 23, 6 through 12. Well, Herod doesn't want to have to deal with this, this man. I mean, he's interested in Jesus, as the text says. He's glad he got to meet him, but he doesn't want to have to deal with this. So they send Jesus back again to Pilate in Luke 23, 13 through 25. And Pilate realizes that Jesus is innocent. So what Pilate wants to do is punish Jesus, beat him up a little bit, and then perhaps release him to be done with all of this. But the Jewish people would have none of that. So while he is there with Pilate, Pilate sends him off to be scourged uh, prior to the Jews telling uh, him to crucify Jesus. So in this dialogue, now we have overlapping events here, so, so realize that. So when he's with Pilate, it is the Jews that look upon Jesus and say, crucify that man, but give us Barabbas. Release Barabbas to us, a criminal, but, but send Jesus Christ to death. Crucify him. But before we can get to that point, Pilate sends Jesus off to be scourged. Now, some of this is is in Roman law, and some of it is not. So in other words, what they did to Jesus in some cases was worse than what they did to other prisoners. So they send Jesus off to, to be scourged in John 19, 1. The first thing they do to Jesus is they, they, they take this vine and they fashion a crown of thorns. Now, this is not just your little sticker bush growing along your fence line where you get blackberries. No, this is a, a vine that has thorns upwards of one inch in length, it is believed, and they are very sharp. And so they fashion this crown, and they don't just lay it on his head. They stick it on his head, and they drive it into his head. This is mocking him because, after all, he said he was a king, and so they're putting a king's crown on him, and they're driving this into his head. Now, the 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 thorns could not get into the inside the skull, but still it would hurt profusely, and there would be bleeding from that. And so while this crown is on him, the Roman soldiers are mocking him, they're spitting on him, and then they beat him across the head with this crown on there, so these thorns go deeper into his head, and the pain in the head region would begin to take a toll. And so when you're bleeding out, out your forehead... 
and he, he didn't have the little towel to wipe his face with, the blood would run down, and blood has a whole lot of salt in it. So what happens when you get salt water or sweat in your eye? It is very uncomfortable. So this blood would be getting in his eyes, and you can't see very well. So all of his mental senses now are being affected. But that's not all. Then they send him to the next thing, which is the flagellation, which is under Roman law. There are accounts that the Romans would do this almost without exception to anybody that was going to the cross. Now, there were some who would only go through this and they would be released. But almost everybody went through this before they went to the cross. And so what would happen is, is that they would have an individual, they would, they would tie you to a post, they would, you would be bent over, you'd be on your knees, and so your back would be exposed along with the bottoms of your feet. And what they were going to do to you was very painful, it was humiliating, and it was bloody. And what they would use is a modified bullwhip that had tassels on it, kind of like a cat of nine tails, that, that, that it would be a bullwhip and have all these, these different uh, strands going out and these weren't just little bitty things. These would be woven such that you could put a lead weight or a rock in it or a sharp bone. And what they would do is, is they, would, they would whip you, uh, the, the accused or the prisoner, across the back. Now, the lead weights, remember if he had the hemahydrosis, his skin was already tender. And so they would hit him on the back. And ladies and gentlemen, I have watched Passion of the Christ that Mel Gibson made. Ladies and gentlemen, that is elementary compared to what would actually happen, okay? So they would hit him across the back, and, the, and the, the lead weights would probably open the flesh, or the bone would stick in, and then they would pull it, and it would open it, would open it up. And so there was this, he would be bleeding, and there were accounts that some prisoners that they did, they would hit you around and the lead weights would be so heavy that they would break your ribs or it would swing around and hit you in the face and would knock an eye out. Now, we, none of that, we believe, happened to our Lord because none of his bones were broken there. But still, it is terrible. In the bottoms of his feet, he very well may have had the bottoms of his feet whipped as well. We, we don't know because not all of that is recorded in Scripture, but it is in Roman historical accounts of what they would do. So this individual would be weakened, and in some cases, the person died right there. They never made it to the cross because it was so bad. But we're not done yet, okay? So then, after they do that, then Jesus comes back before Pilate. And so when Jesus is standing there with Pilate... And Jesus is saying, what shall we do with Barabbas? They say, release him, and what shall we do with Christ? They yell, crucify him. So that is the Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, the beat up and whipped and bloody pulp. That is the people of God who should have been waiting for the Messiah, who should have been excited that the Messiah was there. In their arrogance, they yelled, crucify that man. And so, so far, he's been humiliated. He's been spit on. He's been whipped. He's been beat. He's had a crown of thorns on his head. He's been flogged. He's dehydrated. And he most likely has an excruciating migraine. And we're not done. And so then Jesus goes to the, the crucifixion. And so he, in John uh, nineteen seventeen, it says that he carried the cross. Now, it doesn't matter if he carried the whole cross. In some cases, the prisoners only carried the cross beam. It doesn't matter 
because it was heavy, and in his weakened state, it would be very difficult to carry. This is not some landscaping timber that you get at Lowe's or Home Depot. This was a, this like a railroad tie, folks, that, that he would have to carry. And so he's carrying that as best he can. And it indicates that he probably only made it to the city gate. He was done. And then Simon of Cyrene was commissioned to carry it for him in Matthew 27, 32. And you see, they sent Jesus outside the city. Because Jesus was the Jewish people there in Jerusalem. And, and so what they did was is they sent him out of the city. He's rejected and humiliated. They're sending him away. Get out of our presence and go out there. And so then Jesus arrives at the place of the crucifixion. And so Jesus was there between these two criminals. And so now guess who would have been most likely on that cross had it not been Jesus? Barabbas would have been nailed to that thing. But they let Barabbas go. Barabbas should have been there on that. But Jesus says, no, let Barabbas go, and I will get on that cross for Barabbas. And if you and I are honest, when we look in the mirror, ladies and gentlemen, there's probably a little bit of Barabbas in all of us, if we're truly honest with our heart, because the heart is wicked outside of anything to do with Jesus Christ. So Jesus got on that cross and took the place of Barabbas, and he was between two criminals. And then they nailed him to that cross, these big old nails, there were three of them, and they nailed him, most likely in the wrist. And then they put his feet together, and they put his knees up like that. And so they would drive it between the wrist and on tops of the feet. They would either damage or sever nerve endings when they did that. And it would be a burning pain beyond description. And no doubt when those Roman soldiers drove those nails in there, the blood of Jesus got on those Roman soldiers, but it did no good for them because they did not accept the sacrifice that Jesus was doing. They very well might have had the blood of God upon them. And so when all of that is happening, they're nailing Jesus to the cross, okay? Jesus says, oh, Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing in Luke 23, 34. And then they're not done. They hoist him up. They, they lift him up. And so as he's there, he's hanging and then when it goes into the hole and it, it sits down, the weight of our Lord would pull on those nails and it would be excruciating. There would be the increase of pain. And doctors tell us that most likely his elbows and his shoulders would be dislocated to the point that his arms would be approximately six inches longer than they normally would. And there on the cross as the body hangs, he would try to pull himself up to breathe and let himself down. Over and over and over, an exhaustion would set in, and you would most likely slowly suffocate. And I want to read you a medical description of what was taking place. It says, The difficulty surrounding exhalation, exhaling, leads to a slow form of suffocation. Carbon dioxide builds up in the blood, resulting in a high level of carbonic acid in the blood. The body responds instinctively triggering the desire to breathe. At the same time, the heart beats faster to circulate available oxygen. The decreased oxygen due to the difficulty in exhaling causes damage to the tissues and the capillaries begin leaking watery fluid from the blood into the tissues. This results in a buildup of fluid around the heart. It's called pericardial effusion. And the lungs, I believe plural effusion, the collapsing lungs, the failing heart, dehydration, and the inability to get sufficient oxygen to the tissues essentially suffocates the victim. The decreased oxygen also damages the heart itself, myocardial inf 
perforation, which leads to a cardiac arrest. In severe cases of cardiac arrest, the heart can even burst, a process known as cardiac rupture. Then it says Jesus most likely died of a heart attack, possibly a heart attack and suffocation simultaneously. And then after Jesus died, the the Roman soldiers come up and they break the legs of the two criminals that are on either side of Jesus to expedite the process of the suffocation. Then they come to Jesus and realize he's already dead. So they pierce his side, and as uh, John tells us, 19 indicates that water and blood both ran out of the side of our Messiah. And what that would most likely be would be the blood that they would that that would come out and that watery fluid that had collected around his heart and his lungs would also come out. Now, it's interesting. Jesus went before the Jews. Those individuals that should have been looking for Jesus to come, those individuals that should have been excited that Jesus was here, and in their arrogance, they pronounced him guilty. And he goes to the, the civil authorities And they don't know anything about a coming Messiah, really. They don't know anything about God or the kingdom of God. And they can see that this man is innocent. So it was Jesus' own people whom he came to who rejected him, pronounced him guilty, and then the civil government pronounced him innocent. So the unpleasant facts surrounding all of this, this crucifixion, indicates the length that God was willing to go for you. Scripture is clear. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins, no forgiveness whatsoever. The only way that you and I can be forgiven is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So why did all this take place? I mean, why did God subject His Son to that? So that you and I could have the opportunity to have a relationship with God. And I want you to think about something else. Hear me on this. If there was any other way that a person could get to God the Father and go around the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. If you could get to God the Father bypassing Jesus Christ, as some of our, our commentators today will say, oh, we're just all going up to the top of the mountain taking a different path. That's a lie straight from hell. Okay, And so if there was any other way to get to God the Father apart from Jesus Christ and God sent His one and only Son to suffer the atrocities of the cross, I'm not interested in worshiping a God like that. But the only way that a righteous God could righteously forgive our unrighteousness is doing it the way that He did it and He sent His one and only darling Son to suffer the atrocities of the cross so that you and I can go free, period. There's no other plan. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, you know, sometimes I'm a pretty good old boy and I'm a pretty good old girl. And you know, I I do a lot of good things. And you know, that person at the other end of the aisle for me, they're a whole lot worse than I am. They will probably go to hell, but I'm pretty good. And so I'm going to get into heaven based on my merits. Ladies and gentlemen, don't listen to that that you cannot elevate yourself like that and ever say that you're pretty good because on your worst day, you, it necessitates the death of Jesus Christ. If you live 75 years in sin only once, one time your entire life, it necessitates the death of Jesus Christ in order for you to be given and go free. And notice how holy he is. He was born under the law. He never sinned. He never lied, and when he was confronted, he spoke the truth. He was perfection that went to the cross on our behalf. He did the only thing that God could do. We deserve the punishment, and he took it. And there is no perfection this side of heaven. 
Now think about this, moms. You've got a little boy. He's just learning how to walk. And you're all excited. You got it on video. And uh, you're going to want to send it to all your friends and put it all over Facebook because you're a happy, exciting mama and your child falls and hits his face on the counter or the, or the furniture. What's going through your heart? Your heart aches. Your heart grieves. Oh, no, and my baby's crying. Oh, I, I got to be careful. I can't. We, we, we can't do it like this anymore. And then a few years later, your little boy's riding a bicycle. And he falls down and he skins his elbow up and gets a bloody elbow and a bloody knee and maybe a scrape on the chin. And so you're running over there and your heart grieves and your heart aches for your little boy because he wrecked his bicycle. What do you think was going through the mind of Mary as she was watching her child, her son, up on that cross? What was going through her mind? That she had to watch all of that. But did you know that that was necessary? Because Mary didn't get a free pass because she birthed Jesus. Okay, Scripture is clear. We have all sinned. Every one of us has sinned. And so even Mary had to put her faith, her confidence, and her trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross and by that empty grave. There is no other way. And you remember the man, Mr. Sackett, that I told you about that would show up to that little convenience store and he would leave that engine running and he really didn't know why. He just did it out of habit. Let you and I never approach the Lord's table not knowing why we have reverence and respect when we take our place at his table. Because mankind's greatest act of rebellion, mankind's greatest act of shaking his fist in God's face was God's greatest act of love, grace, and mercy. And I want you to think about that as you take your place for the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is... It's pretty simple. There's not a whole lot to it. It's bread, juice. But what it represents is eternal. You see, the bread represents that body that went through all that I described and more. I, there's no way I can, we could cover it all. Every little detail. But it represents that body that was crushed for our iniquity. And then the, the juice represents the blood, the the cup, if you will, that Jesus said that it's the cup of the new covenant, life in Christ. And you have to have both. You have to have the body that is suffered and the shed blood, and you accept that for the forgiveness of your sins, to have life in Him. And this supper is, there's an invitation to all who have accepted Jesus Christ. You do not have to be a member of this church, but Scripture is clear that the, the payment of his death has to be transacted on your account. In other words, you're forgiven before you sit at his table because if you have never accepted Christ, his death hasn't done anything for your life. Make no mistake about that. So the table is for those who have accepted Jesus Christ. It's also a time where... In our flesh, we, we deal with things on a day-to-day -day basis. Now's the time to, Lord, please soften my heart and the, the things that I deal with. Help me 
work through and navigate the things of life so that I don't have ill will towards somebody else, especially another brother or sister in Christ. Help me with that. And I know that if you are give that to him, he will he'll take care of that. And then in just a moment as we pass out the bread, if you're on a gluten-free diet, if you'll raise your hand, I'll bring you uh, a piece of gluten-free bread so that you can partake in the supper as well. This time I ask the men to come forward.